Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What does it look like to teach sexual purity in a way that's relevant today? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. I'm really excited to dive into that question with an expert who's got a new book on this topic, but he also happens to be a good friend and a co-author and a longtime colleague. And so Dr. Sean McDowell is joining us of Biola University, and his brand new book that we're going to be talking about today is a book called Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. So, Sean, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Justin. Great to be back with you. Awesome. Well, you know, as we were thinking about this, I remember us hanging out and talking about a little bit of the ideas of of why tackle this topic now. Maybe tell a little of the story of how it is you came to write this book and why now. Yeah, that's a great question. I Well, I guess in some ways the story started when I was about 12 and 13 years old. In the 1980s, my dad was leading the first global sexual purity campaign called Why Wait? So my dad is writing books, and he's speaking, and he's researching. Right around the time at 12, 13 years old, I'm kind of hitting puberty, trying to figure this stuff out for myself. Well, fast forward, obviously, a few years. The True Love Waste campaign starts in the 90s, goes in early 2000s. Now I've got my own kids. I'm speaking. I'm writing. And the True Love Waste campaign actually came to me and said, would you be willing to do the recent curriculum and write a book on sexual purity for students today? And instantly I thought, you know what? I've been speaking and writing on this issue for years, but never put it all together. And I think my perspective is unique because I'm a parent. I have three kids, but also a fourth who's basically adopted. We have three teens in our home right now. I teach high school students, I research this stuff like crazy, and grew up in a unique home, and the conversation has changed so much that I thought, you know what, it is just a timely moment that someone needs to give a biblical and yet relevant sexual ethic for students. No, I love that, and I know it's one of the things I love about, honestly, anything that you write and do is it's so practical and useful and helpful, but it's very well thought out, it's biblically grounded, and it puts those things together really well. But a second ago, you mentioned that in today's culture, just there's some unique things and the conversations have changed. Maybe set the stage a little bit. What are some of those things that you have in mind? Well, I think the elephant in the room, every time I go anywhere and speak and students ask questions, it's almost always about the LGBTQ conversation. Can you be Christian and can you be gay? Is it okay to get a, a sex change for a non-Christian? What about for Christians? Should you use preferred gender pronouns? Those are some of the huge questions that come up in students' minds, and they don't know how to think about it biblically. I think in the minds of so many young people, and I would say, Jonathan, even Christian young people, a biblical sexual ethic is antiquated, it's outdated, it's not relevant, and frankly, a lot of them probably believe the larger cultural narrative that biblical sexuality is actually repressive and harmful. So the question is, I think when I was growing up, the larger idea was that a biblical sexual ethic was good, not that everybody followed it, but we kind of culturally agreed that at least it'd be nice that people lived that way. Well, that has totally changed. 
So for a lot of young people, I'm trying to convince them really, I guess you could say the heart of the book is I'm trying to persuade young people that a biblical view of sexuality, which is the view that Jesus held, is good and it's true and it's beautiful. That's what I'm aiming to do. Yeah, and I really think you, you know, succeed with flying colors in this book. And I love where you begin, and we'll get to some of this. And if you're listening right now, you definitely want to go pick up a copy of Chasing Love by Sean McDowell. And that's the conversation we're having today. But you kind of start the book by, in some ways, framing the question around, well, two things I want to start with. The first one is you kind of ask the question, who will you trust? And so why, why did you put that towards the beginning? One of the questions I've always wondered about is why is the first commandment in the Bible to Adam and Eve, do not eat the fruit? I mean, why didn't God say, Adam, don't murder Eve? I mean, wouldn't that be more intuitive and easier? Why does he put a fruit in the middle of the garden? That it's interesting, Genesis says it just looked appealing, it felt like everything about it. And by the way, fruit is made to be eaten and enjoyed. Why does God give that command? And the reason that I've come to is I think because God wants us to trust him. And if a finite creature is going to be in a relationship with an infinite God, there's going to be things that we simply do not and cannot understand and are going to have to trust that God is good. That's why I think that was the commandment in the garden. Well, look, today it's the same thing. It's like, wait a minute, why can't I just get divorced if I'm not happy with my wife? Why can't I enter into a same-sex relationship? On and on and on, and at the heart of it, I'm asking young people, I'm saying, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust this larger cultural narrative, which comes through Netflix, it comes through music, it comes through TikTok videos, or are you going to trust the God of the universe who made you and gave us the gift of relationships and sex? So that's the heart of the question for every young person they have to answer is, who am I listening to and why? Yeah, and I think that's the really important question to frame it at the beginning. And I love how you put that because even in that sense of that age-old question is like, well, why the why the fruit in the garden? Like, what was God up to there? I think that puts things in perspective and also honestly displays the heart of God. But how big it is, it's like, okay, will you trust me? I mean, that's at the bottom line. And so towards the beginning of the book, you also talk about as a foundation the sexual ethic of Jesus. Why, why start there as opposed to in another place, and, and what are you trying to accomplish in that? Well, even though the biblical worldview is kind of uh, under assault to greater and lesser degrees in our culture, I think everybody still wants Jesus on their side. There's still a sense that, like, Jesus is good, and so, and especially because Jesus is God in human flesh and shows us what God is like, let's start with the sexual ethic of Jesus. So I obviously lay out what Jesus teaches in the scriptures say is that sex is meant for one man and one woman in a committed relationship in life who've become one flesh. But Jesus also holds up singleness as an equal God honoring way of living your life. He teaches both. Now, one thing I do in one of the earlier chapters, and I found this is powerful with students, is I say, can you imagine what the world would be like? Would it be better or worse? if everybody actually followed the sexual ethic of Jesus, would it be better or worse? And pretty quickly, students start to realize, guy, there'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There would be no deadbeat dads. There would be no crude sexual humor or pornography or 
abortion or kids growing up, at least not in a wanted home with a mom and a dad, the world would objectively be better. So I start with Jesus because he still holds an authority in the minds of a lot of people in the culture. And I think it's helpful to illustrate why objectively biblical teaching is both good and beautiful. And I think that's really helpful because when Jesus still at least can get you into that conversation, then you can at least have some, hopefully some common ground in that process. And I think that's that's a really helpful way to frame it. You know, one of the things that I, I know is an important concept that you develop before we're going to get into some of the myths you talk about and some of those kind of things. But, you know, how do you think... Maybe in contrast to Jesus ethic, I guess, how would you summarize kind of a modern Western-minded sexual ethic? Like what parallel, I guess, contrasts that with Jesus ethic? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say our culture says to live for yourself. Jesus said, love God and others as you love yourself. I think our culture says, if it feels good, do it. Jesus says, if it's right, do it. If it's wrong, don't. Our culture says, follow your wants. And I think Jesus and the scriptures say, cultivate and develop the right wants. So essentially, our culture says, if it feels good and you want to do it and you're not hurting anybody, at least that badly, and even if you're hurting them, they consent to it, then you're fine. And you should affirm anybody else who does the same. A biblical sexual ethic says, no, actually— Jesus said, you know, it says in John, that greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. That is a sacrificial kind of love that has the best objective interest of the other in mind. And what's always interesting to me about this, Jonathan, is that our culture, I think young people have a hard time because their hearts tell them one thing is love, but their minds tell them something else. They have a hard time doing the loving thing when it feels otherwise. And so I point to him, I say, ironically, like, again, like Jesus said, great love, had no man this, the man laid down his life for a friend. The people who crucified Jesus felt that they were doing the right thing. They actually thought that they were doing what was right and arguably loving, but they were dead wrong. That tells us you can feel like you're doing what is right, but actually be wrong. So I want to frame love for this generation and say not what feels good, not just what you want, but what is objectively good for other people. And I think that can start to change the conversation. No, I think that is really, really helpful because, again, I think there's just so much confusion and so much, for lack of a better way of putting it, bad discipleship that the culture is doing through screens, technology, Netflix, media, social media, movies, and everything else that we got to help the next generation and students and honestly everyone pursue that kind of love that you're talking about. But you also kind of talk about the importance of understanding freedom. Say, say more about what experiencing true freedom looks like. I've come to think that one of the biggest lies this generation is tempted to think is that freedom is doing whatever you want to do as long as it feels good and you decide it. So I was speaking with a group of Christian high school students, 17, 18 years old, you know, maybe a year ago. And I asked them, I said, describe for me who is truly free. And these kids who've grown up in the church and Christian schools their whole life, they said, the person who can do whatever they want without restraint. I said, okay, paint a picture of that. And they said, well, it'd be the person alone on an island 
who can do anything and nobody's stopping them from living out however they want to live. I said, okay. I said, if God exists, does that change how we think about freedom? And they talked amongst themselves. They came back and they said, well, if God exists, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. But now there's consequences. I mean, think about that, Johnson. In their minds, all God adds to the question of freedom is consequences. Maybe guilt in this life and judgment in the next. That's it. So to make a long story short, I said to him, I said, you guys understand freedom from, but you don't understand freedom for. Freedom from is half of it. When somebody's not restrain us, if you're in jail, you lack a certain kind of freedom. But freedom for is when we understand what something has been designed for and use it accordingly. So actually yesterday, I was speaking to my high school students where I teach this private school part-time and I held up my smartphone. I said, what is this for? It's not a scuba tank. It's not a Frisbee. It's designed for a purpose. And when we know its purpose, then we can use it accordingly. And you might say it's set free. So if you ask what's human purpose, you go back to the garden. It's to be in a relationship with God and other people. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and love other people. That means we're made for relationships. So we're only free in healthy, committed relationships. And I said to him, I said, do you see how ironic this is? Your view of freedom is somebody lacking relationships alone on an island, whereas biblically speaking, if God exists, that person is the least free. I said, it's no coincidence that in jail, the worst place to be is solitary confinement, and in hell, it's described as aloneness, and heaven is a city or a banquet. It's relationships. So... The only way we can know what's free is by understanding what we're made for. And one other point I'd make on this, Jonathan, I use this with students a lot, is they said freedom is doing what you want without restraint. Actually, two more points. I had a conversation with this fellow, I'll make it really quick, at the Olympics in 96, and he Mm -hmm. was drinking alcohol all day while we worked at this stand. And he said to me one time, he goes, you know, I can drink if I want to. And I said, let me ask you a question. Can you go a day without drinking? Because if not, it doesn't strike me that you're free. Now, I might have been a little rash in the way I said that. That was two decades ago. But freedom's not doing what you want. Freedom is cultivating the right wants. That's what freedom is. And it's not without restraint. Take a piano. It's only when you know what a piano is for and use it accordingly that you're set free. So if someone jumps on piano and says, I can bang this however I want to, they're not really free. It's the person who sits down and has trained themselves and plays the piano according to its design that makes beautiful music and is set free. So that was kind of a long answer, but that is a whole chapter in the book because what I found is there's so many Christians and young Christians who have imbibed a secular view of freedom without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. And then when they hear a Christian sexual ethic, they filter it through that funnel. Well, no wonder it's not compelling because they have an entirely different view of what it even means to be free. Yeah, no, I think that the importance of that point can't be overstated because with that framing, either the cultural definition of freedom, which is not truly freedom, it's slavery, as opposed to what true freedom is, as you just talked about, 
is a game changer for all of us, but especially students as they're cultivating and really who they're becoming. And so, you know, before we get to some of these myths again, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you why, why the title chasing love, like where, where did that come from? And, and what were you trying to do with that title? Yeah, I actually love that question. It wasn't my title. The true love waits campaign in partnership with a publisher already had this title but as I thought about it, I was like, number one, it's catchy. You can remember it. But I decided to flip it because normally we think, oh, chasing love, how do I find that relationship that we are all chasing after so we can be fulfilled and have a meaningful life? And I start off in the book and I say, that's probably what you thought when you heard the term chasing love. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus said we should be chasing not for ourselves, but we should be chasing what it means to love God and what it means to love other people. So I'm flipping the script on its head. Our culture says, seek for yourself, get, 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 do what you want. And Jesus says, sacrifice, seek the best for other people. And guess what? When you do that, as it says in Matthew 6, 33, and all these things shall be added unto you. And what's powerful about that is when it comes to sex, it's only one smaller but important part of somebody's larger discipleship. So how you and I answer the question in our bigger lives, am I loving God and loving other people, is going to be manifested how we treat our kids, how we treat our friends, how we treat our spouses. That's what I'm trying to get young people to think about. Yeah, I love that. I love how you kind of flip that and that natural way of thinking about it and how help people think about it differently. So I think that's a really important point. And so our conversation today is with Sean McDowell. The brand new book is Chasing Love. So you'll definitely want to pick up a copy of that because we're only scratching the surface of all these great chapters in here that's got so much content and helpful advice and input that's biblically based. So definitely want to grab a copy of Chasing Love. But Sean, I want to talk to you about some of these myths a little bit. You know, and maybe one of the biggest ones that we need to address and that you address in the book is this idea that sex is not a big deal. Talk about that one. Yeah, one of the things that we hear, at least we heard initially in the sexual revolution, was sex is not sacred. It doesn't mean anything. In fact, an activist one time I remember saying, he goes, it's just like having a glass of water. It's just a biological function. It has no meaning. Well, the first thing that's shown that to be a lie is the Me Too movement. Obviously, people realize that physical and emotional abuse is terrible, but the Me Too movement is kind of saying there's something about sexual abuse that is especially harmful because it strikes at where somebody is. We had Rachel Denholander, who was the, the gymnast who broke the story on the USA gymnastics scandal, um, sex abuse scandal, and she said, I believe she said, if I got it right, that the kind of PTSD for sex abuse is second only to those who've been in war. Like that's how mm. significant it can be. And a piece of that is sexuality. So that just puts a lie to the idea that sex means nothing. But uh, I didn't put that in the book. A story I put in the book that I think is really helpful is from this movie called Passengers with Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. And I think it was around 2016. And it's a story, actually I haven't seen the movie, but I've read and I know the theme of it. It's about, they're in some spaceship heading like 90 years in the future. And the two of them, you know, accidentally wake up at the same time in the middle of this journey. Everybody else is asleep. Well, they start to fall in love, have this romantic encounter. And I saw Chris Pratt interviewed about this. And he was asked by the host, he said, hey, what was it like? 
to do a sex scene with Jennifer Lawrence. How do you care for her to make sure she's okay during such a scene? And I remember thinking, if sex doesn't mean anything, why did she ask him about that conversation? If sex is like having a drink of water, why didn't he say, Chris Pratt, what was it like protecting your co-star when you sat down together and had a drink together? Do you know why he didn't ask that question? Because having a glass of water is nothing like having sex with somebody. We know this. Well, I did a little more research, and it turns out that at the time, that was the first sex scene Jennifer Lawrence had done. Well, she got herself drunk to make it through which scene? Obviously, in the movie, it was the sex scene. And you know, Jonathan, I document this, actually. I wrote a whole blog on this. The night before she filmed that scene, Jennifer Lawrence called her mom and said, Mom, I've never felt so vulnerable in my life. Can you just tell me everything is going to be okay tomorrow? When I hear that as a dad, like my Mm. heart started to just tear out of me because I thought, here's a girl who's imbibed this cultural narrative Sex doesn't mean anything. You can act it for film. It doesn't matter. But her heart is like, no, it means something. So that puts to a lie what we know is that sex does mean something. Mm. That's a powerful illustration that I think will really communicate to this generation and everyone who listens to it. I mean, I think that really puts it into perspective. Uh, it is a big deal. And, and I think we all, we all know that. Another myth you talk about in the book is, okay, well, look, sex is merely a private act. So talk about that myth. Yeah, I think if there's anything you and I get pushback on when we talk and speak on this issue is they'll say, especially conservatives, Why do you care what people do alone in the bedroom? Keep your morality and policies out of the bedroom to yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is sex is not solely a private act. We've all heard the Vegas campaign, which might be the most successful marketing campaign in history. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens in the bedroom doesn't stay in the bedroom. And I'll give you some examples. Every year, there's 20 million new cases of STDs in the United States, half of those are 15 to 24 years old. And that is billions of dollars of medical expenses, not to mention the human suffering that resulted from what people did, quote, behind private doors. In fact, again, I document this in the book that there were, I forget what year it was, I think maybe it's 2015, 94 infants died because their mothers had syphilis, an STD, and they contracted it during birth, and it cost them their life. That's 94 vulnerable, innocent human beings that died because what their parents did in the privacy of their home. Like, it's crazy when you think about it. Second, though, is obviously sex makes babies. Now, that is so obvious to you and me, but our culture has worked so hard to separate sex from procreation that we have to remind people that sex is a procreative act. So ironically, every breath you take your entire life is testifying to the fact that what happens behind closed doors doesn't stay behind closed doors. Third, I would say, because people are so vulnerable in the act of sex, it shapes our character. It influences who we are. And you have experiences you remember for the rest of your life. So when somebody leaves the bedroom, they take those experiences with them 
and it forms who they are and it informs their relationships. So for those three reasons, and I think actually many more, we need to concede and say, of course, that sex is meant to be experienced in privacy. But it is absolutely false to say it's merely a private act that doesn't have public implications. Yeah, I think that's really insightful and really helpful. And uh, and I think it's another one of those things that people just intuitively know, but they try really hard to forget, and our culture tries really hard to um, confuse on that. And so, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, and there's so many different directions we could go, but... I want to talk about another myth, but also in the larger conversation, because I know you've been following this and you've written on this. Uh, the myth is sexual intercourse is all that matters for purity. And I know there's a whole, there's been some pushback. I mean, there's been some, some key figures even in that, you know, purity movement and those kind of things that perhaps, you know, kind of, kind of inform kind of culturally some of the confusion around this, even some within the church and outside the church. But talk about that myth, but also frame it a little bit. Into, into some of the pushback that even even purity culture, quote-unquote, has had recently? So purity culture has come under fire, as far as I can tell, the last five to ten years. And I think some of the criticism has been very justified. But we also have to be careful. In some ways, when I read articles and books and listen to talks on this, I get the impression that any bad experience anybody had with sexual teaching gets lumped into this nebulous group called purity culture. Mm -hmm. So some people are guilty by association. Even within that, what Joshua Harris taught was very different than what James Dobson taught, was different than some of True Love Waits from my father, some from other figures. So we have to be careful when we just lump people into this purity culture. But with that said, I do think purity culture made some mistakes. And one of it was, you know, we talked earlier about sex means nothing, and that's a myth. It's when people say it's not a big deal. I think sometimes purity culture could have been guilty of going the other extreme and saying sex is the biggest deal. That basically the one thing that will make you happy and fulfilled is getting married to that right spouse and having awesome sex for the rest of your life if you just don't have sex right now. And by sex, they mean male, female, traditional sex. And that's not helpful, I think, for a number of reasons. It's number one, sex is not the biggest deal. The biggest sin, of course, is idolatry. Sex matters, but it's not the biggest issue. I don't want to go to that extreme and get that out of balance. So I think it got, it got that wrong. It also became very formulaic. Like if you just do A, B, and C, you'll get D, E, and F. But life doesn't work that way. It's not that simple. And so, you know, I, I guess the other issue when you say, based on your question about defining what virginity is, it's almost like somebody could have mutual masturbation, be hooked on porn, and be a virgin, and they get the award and are held up in certain kinds of purity culture. And somebody else who's had sex but been redeemed and forgiven and now honoring God with their sex life gets the second place ribbon. Something's messed up with that approach. So we can unpack that more, but that's why I think it's not helpful when we tell students. And some people said you should get rid of the term purity because of the baggage of purity culture, but the Bible talks about being pure, but it talks about it with both our bodies and with our minds. 
Yeah, and I think that's really important. And I think, you know, there's a lot of cultural context there. And I think it's really helpful to unpack that. And even some misguided, almost like this kind of prosperity, purity culture, kind of if you do this, then God will bless everything. And, and, and yeah. well, maybe even unintentionally kind of fostered environments or even attitudes that kind of assumed that, even if they didn't outright say it. And so I think it's important. That's why your book, Chasing Love, is so important because I think it puts it in the right context. Uh, amidst all of these things. And so, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about that, but I want to get to a couple other things um, as well. There's so much helpful stuff in this book. One of the things I wanted to talk about or ask you about was probably why you included the chapters and the myths around singleness, but also in the, the location of why you put them where you did in the ordering of the book. Why did you do it that way? And kind of unpack that a little bit. I love this question. It shows that you know me well, that the placing of singleness itself was intentional. And I think the reason for that is I heard a well-known pastor say, you know, if you want your life to make a difference for Christ, what you have to do is build a relationship with your spouse and build a relationship with your kids. And I heard that, I thought, that is wonderful advice for people who are married. But without realizing it, that sends a message to singles that your life can't count for Christ. <laughs> See, what's happened in the past in the church, I think we've elevated marriage above the goodness and beauty of singleness. And ironically, we're not even married in heaven, unless you talk about the marriage of the Lamb, of course, in a different sense. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, you look at Matthew 19, is marriage and singleness are both beautiful ways of honoring and serving the Lord. Paul says there's strengths of each, and there's challenges of each. In fact, he even goes to say he wishes everybody was like him and single. I haven't heard a lot of talks on that by many pastors. What he <laughs> Put that on the that. camp t-shirt. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, I've never seen that as a team at a camp. That's a great point. So what we've done is we've told people, you got to get married to be fulfilled in purity culture. But then at the same time, our culture, less people are getting married— those who get married are getting married later, and we haven't equipped people from 15 to almost 30 years old how to live God-honoring single lives, nor have we taken the singles amongst us and made them feel loved and included equally in the church as we do married people. So I, in the middle section of the book, I have, the way the book is arranged is the first third of the book is all like faulty views of love faulty views of freedom, what Jesus meant, what the Jesus sexual ethic was. The middle third, I talk about first the purpose of sex, and then the purpose of singleness, and then I put marriage after it. So that was, the order in itself was kind of flipping the script, saying, wait a minute, most young people who read this at 15 years old are single, and they probably will be for another decade. So let's talk about that, and then we'll get to marriage. Yeah, and that's that's so important, right? Because in some ways, I think because the church has not been as clear or talked about singleness and the, and the goodness of singleness as often, it actually set us up for a void around the whole cultural conversation around other topics like homosexuality and different things where people feel disconnected from the body of Christ. Okay, where do I fit in? Well, where's my family and where are my people and relationship and all those kind of things. And so I think it's so crucial for us to be theologically 
clear on what you're doing um, in this book where you talk about the importance of singleness in which in no way devalues marriage. Cause like in our culture, I mean, there's a lot of people who are devaluing. That's right. So we're not, we're not saying, Hey, don't, don't get married and don't be faithful to your spouse and don't raise godly kids and pursue those things together. That, those are all good things, but it seems like for a while, those were the only things that got talked about. And so I think that's, that's such an important contribution that you make in this book that I think will cast vision well for, for students. So I love that you put that in there. Well, I, I appreciate that. I was printing out the book early and a, uh, and a lady at the school where I work, probably in her 50s, saw the chapter at Singleist and just read it. And she told me later, she's like, I was in tears because you don't hear people talking about not only the challenges, but the beauty of singleness and how it's a God-honoring way to live. The more I, I've been married 20 years, so reading books and talking to single people, I realize we have missed this in the church and it's to our detriment and to their detriment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's, and there's so much in here, you know, there's, you know, we're all broken Romans three, Genesis three, we just express our brokenness in different ways. And so when it comes to the discipleship aspect of us living out uh, those things and submitting our sexuality to the Lordship of Jesus, obviously there's, there's ways that are distortions of that. What would you say is probably maybe the top one or two distortions of God's good design for sex that especially teenagers are going to encounter uh, today? Oh, gosh, that's a huge question. I would probably say it's in the area of pornography because I was just talking with my students this past week about how there's such a thing as objective beauty, and we were working through the abolition of man as C.S. Lewis, and I think they got the idea that a rose has the property of beauty, Sunset has a property beauty because God is beautiful. Ugliness is a twisting and a corruption of beauty. And that's what pornography is. It corrupts God's good, beautiful design of the human body, of sex, and it sends a script to this generation. And all the studies show, and I think a lot of my conversations would bear out, that so many in this generation are getting their ideas about sex from pornography. And the script could not be more opposite of a biblical view of sexuality. So that's why in the latter third of the book, I kind of talk about these contemporary issues like the LGBTQ conversation, pornography, sex abuse, cohabitation, and show how many of these involve a twisting or a corruption of God's good design. Yeah, and it's such a helpful part, and I want to encourage people to get a copy of Chasing Love to find out more about what Sean says about that. But, you know, I want to ask, you know, maybe there's somebody listening to this, maybe a mom, a dad, a student, and they're going, I'm just broken by my own sexual sin, or I didn't do it God's way, or I, you know, am I out of reach of God's grace, or I feel such shame. What would be your message to those people listening, having those thoughts right now? You know, I just did a short TikTok video on this, believe it or not, this morning, because I got 30 cards at a recent conference of students asking questions about sex, love, and marriage. And one of them that just made me stop was a teenager said, I don't know what to do. I am, I feel like I've crossed so many sexual lines. I feel horrible about it. How do I get out of this unhealthy situation? And can I ever have a good marriage? And the first thing I said is I said, you got to realize that God loves you. God loves you and he forgives you. I mean, it says in First John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us of all our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I love in the Old Testament, it says, God separates our sins, the East from the West. If you go North, eventually you're going South. If you go East, you're doing it for eternity. So anybody who's hearing this, who's experienced sexual brokenness, which by the way, is all of us to varying degrees. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of like, who is broken in their life? All of us, scripture makes clear is that you have been forgiven and God loves you deeply. And the second thing I would say is don't do this alone. Find somebody you trust, whether it's a good friend, a parent, a mentor, a coach, a teacher, and just confess that to them, your brokenness. And what happens is that is so freeing. That's what Jesus meant when he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Getting out from that sin, there's such a powerful liberation And I can tell you, I have seen guys hooked on porn for decades in their marriage, come out of it and experience freedom in their life and restored relationships. So I promise you it is possible and do it with accountability, power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of other believers around you. Yeah. And and that's really so encouraging to hear. And that's really what I want to kind of end on a little bit, because I know some people are out there thinking, look, this does seem impossible. Like, how in the world am I going to be able to remain sexually pure in this sex saturated world? Like, what does that look like? You have encouragement at the end, but maybe give a little more encouragement and a little vision around that, because you say you can do it. So what does that look like for those who are listening and especially teenagers today? Well, one of the unique perspectives I have is I was just speaking last week to 1,500 students. I get to speak, although things have been you know, transformed in different ways by COVID, I get to speak to a ton of young people. And I found they're interested and anxious to know, what does the Bible teach about how far is too far? What does the Bible say about you know, the purpose of sex or how experience forgiveness or fill in the blank with a million questions? And as I travel around the country, I meet thousands of young people who probably are in the minority of the culture as a whole, but a ton of them saying, we want to do what's right. We want to follow Jesus. We don't want to live the way of the world. So I know it's easy if you're a Christian right now to just feel like you're alone, and especially because it can cost you something right now. It can cost you a relationship, your reputation, but you're not alone. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a ton of other young people around you. And there's also a lot of older people, either those who look back and say they blew it, but God forgave them and transformed them and renewed them. Or some people looking back and say, you know what, by God's strength, I I was able for the most part to follow God's plan. And I'm reaping that benefit in my relationship today. So that's why I end the chapter on you can do it saying, don't buy the lie of our culture that the only happiness is found in sex and that you can't say no, that's false. You can make good choices. You're capable of doing this. And God wants you to and equip you through other believers and the Holy Spirit to do so. I love that. I know that's your heartbeat. I know that's why you teach high school students. I know that's why you teach students at Biola. I know that's why I, I teach students that way. That's why we do you know, summer, you know, Impact 360 Immersion, which you get to come teach with us at. And we talk about stuff like this and, and gap year and yeah. experience. Because students, I think if they realize their strength in numbers and that other people are fighting the good fight and they're fleeing the evil desires of youth and pursuing righteousness and love and peace alongside those who call on the Lord with pure heart, like Second Timothy 2.22 talks about, 
there's there's power in that and when we can equip them to to walk in this way and give them vision for this knowing it's like you know what you're not going to do this perfectly but you can do this well empowered by the holy spirit i just love that message and so sean i'm so grateful that you took the time to write this book chasing love and if you're a mom or a dad listening right now a grandparent i encourage you to pick up a copy or a youth pastor You'll want to read this book. It's short. It's got a ton of content in it, lots of chapters, super actionable, so that you can cast vision in a new generation, what it looks like to pursue purity as God's designed it and why that's so important. So if you want people to come alongside you in the process, you can check out Impact 360 and some of our experiences. You can check out Bible University, where Sean teaches, and his research and resources at seanmcdowell.org and tons of other good books and resources there. But Sean, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and write such a helpful book in Chasing Love. Oh, thanks for having me on, my friend. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live. Live.